Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, can you guys hear me? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. I'm looking yes. at you on a screen in front of a bunch of people. That's very weird. All right. I'm really, I'm really glad I can't see Can everybody say hello to uh, the Reverend Sarah Condon and the Reverend Rutger Jan Heyman? Well, let's get going. How are you guys doing? What's uh, Sarah, near-death experiences? What's... <laughs> Am I allowed to announce that? What's going on? Um, I went looking for cars today. Mm. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. Um, yesterday, um, I was driving my mom's car. So my mom and my dad died in December. And I already made jokes about it. So buckle up. Um, but I inherited my mom's Yukon XL. And it, 2005, cherry yeah, red. 2015. <laughs> okay. 2015, that's right. 15, yeah, my bad. My that's bad. right. And it just stopped in the middle of the freeway yesterday and those things are big so it took up two lanes and i went like screaming and running out of it um because i did not want to get hit it was really scary anyway it needs a new transmission and we're getting a new car so that's what i've been doing today is looking at cars well have you been on the phone with rj constantly then because i have texted him so much you have no idea (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Except I gave her more information than she ever could possibly want. That no, was very about helpful. About the, uh, yeah. RJ's like, well, well that market. engine was discontinued in 2014 and in 2015. <laughs> they were taken over exactly. by Kia. You know, every time I text him no, about... No, I actually was, I was strongly advocating for a Kia or a Hyundai, but apparently she's going to go Toyota, which is a little predictable, but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nothing if not predictable. He's exactly. Oh my gosh. You are anything but predictable. <laughs> um, well, anything else going on in, in, in Heyman world? What's, what's happening in Florida? Uh, we just sent my son Spencer off for like 10 days in Texas. He's going to go spend like a week with his friends in Houston and then fly to Austin, help my oldest son pack up, and they'll be home in like 10 days. So uh, that's kind of summer's approaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what can I say? It's been a good day. I played, I, I played uh, 18 holes this morning, par three. So, so there you go, just living, living my, it's my day off. It's my day off in my defense. For um, some reason, you're, you're more insufferable in this format than usual. <laughs> yes, that oh makes my, sense. Good. Thank you, Bob's right out the gate. Right yeah, out the yeah. gate. <laughs> uh, well, it's Mother's Day this weekend, in case yes, you hadn't known, in case you're not prepared. And so, well, actually, I should say, we're having a great time in Tyler. It's it's hey. you're you're missed terribly, Sarah. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> RJ, yes, you know. Yes, I know. It's okay. As hey. always, take it or leave it. I'm the third wheel. I know. I get it. <laughs> you know. 
someone the other day wrote in and said that or on iTunes was saying that like I can't decide which one of you is my favorite. You're all I, even RJ is a, is a member of the secret sauce of the mocking Amazing. cast. Even RJ. Incredible. You're like the relish he's like after the that ever quotes the Bible. <laughs> yeah, he's the one that quotes the Bible. Keeping it Christian. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's beautiful here in uh, Tyler, Texas, and uh, it's also going to be Mother's Day here in the Rose City. That's what they call it. Uh, and so I thought I'd open up with this article by Arthur Brooks, which appeared in The Atlantic this week. Three simple ways to make your mom happier. Everyone taking notes? Here we go. Motherhood is supposed to bring unparalleled happiness. The Bible, for example, RJ, is full of stories of women, Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth, who go from sorrow to joy when God grants them an unexpected child. In real life, the relationship between happiness and motherhood is more complicated. Raising small children is far from unmitigated bliss. Year after year, surveys that ask mothers what they most want for Mother's Day find that their number one answer is, Sarah? Be alone. Time alone. That's right. <laughs> I haven't even read this. She hasn't. She hasn't read it. Sarah <laughs> never actually reads any of the articles. I'm just gonna. Just gonna. We, we we like the impulsive reactions. The spontaneity. Yes. Yeah. Spontaneity. As children grow up, mothers' mixed feelings seemed to stick around. Research suggests that plenty of mothers feel some resentment toward their adult progeny, especially when the relationship feels unequal. Logically, a mother's overall well-being should rise as kids grow up because the pressures of raising young kids decrease, while the sense of meaning that adult children bring their mother, mothers stays high. But the opposite appears to be true. In 2016, three social scientists looked at the life satisfaction of women with and without kids. They found that during childbearing years, mothers and mothers-to-be were happier than non-mothers. However, by age 40 and beyond, Mothers' life satisfaction levels were generally a bit lower than their childless counterparts. Researchers studying mothers have also found that almost 54% said their relationship with their adult child or children was, quote, intimate but also restrictive, and that they had, quote, mixed feelings about the relationship or some ambivalent statement. The strongest predictor of ambivalence toward an adult child was whether their mother continued to financially support them. And the biggest predictor of interpersonal stress between adult child and mother was her affirmative answer to the question, do you feel that you give more than you receive in this relationship? Uh, then he goes on to actually say a few ways that uh, adult children can be, make their mother happier. Um, the first one is, at the most obvious level, adult children can lower their mother's resentment and stress by decreasing their financial dependence. Um, which has been repeatedly found to be a significant source of family conflict. But secondly, and I'll spare you the, 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 the third one, is um, they encourage adult children to host a holiday at your place for once. <laughs> so that's a lot, and I know the, even the subject of mothers is, I mean, in all sensitivity, it's, it's not the easiest subject right now. Um, what, does, this, does this sound true to your experience, or um, what kind of thoughts did this bring up for you? I mean, I'm just like, why does everybody have to be happy? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Like, what is this, like, comparison? Like, but you got a kid. That's kind of amazing. And, like, what is what is love without suffering? Like, it's not love. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I mean, I can, 
relate to some of the things about some of the financial stuff. Like I remember like the first time we paid for dinner out with my parents, they were like, what is this? You know? Um, and it was like kind of a moment of really beautiful grace. Um, but yeah, I don't know all this like happiness stuff, especially now I'm just like, what? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like you're slightly less happy and like, but you have like adult children and like, they're people in the world and that's an amazing gift. I don't know. I don't mean to be insensitive to like all the 60 year old women sitting there right now who are like, just wait. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) like, and I know, I mean, I definitely like, you know, have heard moms of adult children complain. Like I know, I know all the issues, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, these things hit me in a different way now. I bet. Yeah. Well, how do they hit Rutger? RJ's mom still pays for his cell phone. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just pays for everything. No, I was going to say that's one of the things I, I, this article makes me grateful for is one of the things my father was very clear about is like when you graduate from college, we'll, we'll get you that far and then you're quote unquote off the payroll, off the payroll. And there definitely have been times when I have been a little jealous of, uh, you know, people who've gotten more help uh, financially from their parents kind of after college mm. than, uh, than I received. But it seems like according to this article, that probably was the best thing for, for our relationship. Um, I think, and I don't know this from experience, but I know it from talking to other people, I think it's hard for mothers to lose their, to lose their kids. You know, I mean, I can say from experience, we now have a freshman in college. Um, and it's hard, uh, it was hard to have him go. And it's hard every time he comes back and leaves again. You know, when you're a mother um, and you just pour so much love and time and effort and money and, and, and sacrifice so much of yourself for your child, and then they kind of leave and go off to their own existence, I think that's a really hard thing. And especially uh, if you have more than one child, I think what, if, you, if you devoted your life to being a mother and then suddenly your kids are gone, I've got to think that brings about something of an identity crisis, right? I've always been a mom. That's been my defining, that's been my life's work, mm-hmm. and now it's gone. And so I, I'm very, um, I'm sensitive to how hard that is uh, to, to make that transition from being a mom to try to figure out what, what, am I, what am I now that I'm not sort of a mom in the day in, day out kind of way that I used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and my, my wife and I have talked about that. I think the other thing is that, um, yeah, parents, I think anytime parents are expecting their relationship with their kids to be equal and reciprocal, you're, you're entering into something of a danger zone, mm. right? I, I really hope that I never put a tremendous amount of pressure on my sons to call. You know, that when they do call, I'm not like, why didn't you call sooner? I haven't talked, you know, I've talked to you in ages. You know, my hope is that the, the, the fewer expectations I can have, um, the more likely they might actually be to call. You know, and that we, uh, Jamie and I have already talked about this, like our, our kind of retirement dream is to have a home in a place that our kids and grandkids are going to want to come visit. Um, and then when they're not visiting, we'll like, you know, get a pickup in, air, in an Airstream and just drive around the country and stop in and say hi every so often and try to help out with the kids and try to pay for meals and just do everything we can to be present, but not expect too much in return. Because the other thing is I think you, you sometimes maybe you always forget what your life used to be like, right? And I think sometimes it's easy to forget uh, how impossible it is to be a young parent. It's like the hardest thing in the world, how lonely it is and how, I've I've also thought 
um, how ironic it is that the time in your life when you need the most time and you need the most money, you have uh, the least amount of both of those things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at some point, Jamie and I are going to reach a place where we have too much time. And I don't want to say too much money, but, but more money than we need. Um, and hopefully we can uh, use those resources to continue to bless our kids and not expect too much in return. Mm. But we'll see how it goes. Ask me and, you know, ask my kids in 20 years if they're like, <laughs> parents won't shut up. Oh my God, keep them out of our hair. Um, so those yeah, are my- it makes, it makes me think a lot about actually my mom, just because we spend so much time together and Dave and I have talked about this a ton. Like I keep wanting to write this piece, but I haven't about um, shopping. Um, cause we shopped together. Like that was like when we could talk and when we could really, um, begin to have, sorry, there's like a picture of her right there, begin to have a friendship. And, um, mm. like the first time that like I was able, like you feel like a low key sketchiness when you're like 23 years old and you're out shopping with your mom and you're like, I hope she pays for this, you know? <laughs> like, totally. And there's something about like being old enough that you pay for your own stuff that like she said to me in the last year of life, like of her life, like, I feel like we're finally friends now. And, um, and I think that some of that financial stuff, I mean, as much as we don't want to admit it probably had something to do with it. Um, cause we could be together without, it's kind of like what you're saying, RJ, but from the opposite sort of perspective, like we could, I could be with her without this like anxiety to try to like get out of her, like, you know, a 17 year old wants to get you totally. know, her mom to buy stuff or whatever. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what stuck out to me too, was the source of resentment being that there's some sort of equalness to the parent-child relationship when, I mean, I get it. One of the We've talked about it before, but church on Mother's Day is such a dodgy preposition because proposition because um, uh, it's kind of a, there's a lot of people there under duress, you know. <laughs> they don't really want to be there, but they're there because of their their mom. And then and th and that's sort of funny, and we can make jokes about it. And hey, Father's Day, no one's here, but. Um, <laughs> Then you get to. It's None just, of the men want to go to church. It's so funny. They're, <laughs> they're so grown up. Um, <laughs> but you get to. There's always people coming out of church that day that have such sorrow on their face, and they just say, "I've just." I can think of three faces right now. Of uh, these are women in their 60s, basically, who are just like, "I just what did? Why won't they call? Like what?" What happened? Like, I, I really, there was no, I, I don't see it as abusive. Like, is there anything there? They look at, they look at me as if I would know, like, how do I get, it's, and it's usually the son, but it's sometimes the daughter. It's like, how do I get them to call me? Um, mm. Just not, not, and they're not asking for every week. And so, you know, the mother-child relationship is obviously really complicated, but it's such a painful thing. And I don't, when I hear that, I don't hear them asking for some sort of reciprocal 50-50 egalitarian right. relationship. They just want some acknowledgement, um, some attention paid them. And uh, maybe, maybe Catholics have it right with honoring Mother Mary because uh, we sort of don't know what to do with any of that. Um, and maybe we could do a better job of it. I don't know. Just to name a thing, too, I think it's not too much to say that so many marriages seem to fall apart or come to an end at roughly the same time that the kids leave home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we were, we were holding it all together 
And right. now that the kids are raised and off to college, and this um, won't impact them at all now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This will this won't impact this won't impact every Christmas and Thanksgiving for the rest of time, you know. Um, but uh, but it does. I think you know the answer probably. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that just ups the ante, right? Because now if like the kids have gone and like your parents are unmarried too, yeah. then it just kind of ups the pressure even even more. Whereas um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly hoping to continue to be married after my kids leave home. And my hope is that, um, you know, my, that Jamie and I will satisfy enough of each other's emotional needs that we won't, um, you know, of course I'm gonna want the kids to call. I'm gonna to wanna to spend time with the kids, but I'm not gonna count on them in the same kind of way emotionally as I think ends up happening with some parents when, um, when they're alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I have to say here, um, I would, I have had those conversations, Dave, with parents who are like, I can't get my adult children to call me, what should I do? And I actually would suggest something, um, and that is go to six months of talk therapy hmm. and then tell your kid that you're going to therapy. That would be my suggestion. That's a good suggestion, Sarah. That's a really good suggestion. I mean, because seriously, it says, like, I take this relationship seriously to figure out what might be going on with me that you don't want to be around me. I've been in therapy six months. Like, I see this, and we all see it in ministry a lot, this dynamic, and I can't tell you how often that situation could be fixed if the adult child was like, oh, like, they're trying to figure this out. I'm trying to figure myself out. So, mm -hmm. anyway, I just, you know, do what you will with that. Wise. No, I think I think that's very wise. It's I always think of the guilt is such a governing emotion around uh, mothers and kids. I think there's that New Yorker cartoon of the woman standing up at her mother's funeral and says, "Mom wouldn't want us to feel sad; she'd want us to feel guilty." <laughs> <laughs> I said that from the pulpit one Mother's Day, and like there was the, it was the most uncomfortable laughter I've ever <laughs> ever heard anywhere. But, you know, when a child feels responsible for their parents' emotional well-being, um, they are going to, they may not even be aware that they're feeling that way, but it's going to drive them to not want to call uh, or call with, through gritted teeth. And I think that that's... Uh, it's swingers all over again. When will she, why won't she call? When shall we call? She's not going to call until you stop caring if she's going to call. <laughs> you know, the opening scene with John Favreau Ooh, and uh, talk about other guy. But that's, that could scene. very easily be about parent-child relationships and not just romantic relationships. Mm. So if you haven't seen Swingers, go watch Swingers. So I guess it's a question of expectations a little bit. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about next. The grim secret of Nordic happiness. How do you guys feel about Finland? I met a bunch of Finns recently. There's tons of Finns in South Florida. What? And one of them's dad was a world championship rally driver, which was amazing. So I've had a pretty exciting experience. No car talk. No car talk. No car talk. Sorry. Um, I'll stop the car talk. I'll stop the car talk. Do you have any, any, any feelings about Finland, pro or, pro or con, Sarah Condon? I don't. Is that IKEA? I'm not sure. <laughs> oh Woo, we just lost all of our listeners in Finland. Um, <laughs> Well, according now learn where your country is. Your favorite uh, subject here, according to the World Happiness Report, Finland has surpassed Denmark as the happiest country on earth for the last four years running. I think Iceland is number two, but the distance between it's Finland so and hard Iceland. I could think about white people, Dave. Sorry, keep going. The amount of happiness the things they fill out is just a, a whole lot of white people. White <laughs> furniture from Ikea, being happy. Okay, keep going. The furniture itself is white too, as we've right. talked about before. <laughs> um, 
This is what Yuka uh, Savalanin in, uh, in Slate writes, um, Finland hasn't always had such a blissed out reputation. In 1993, 60 Minutes featured a segment on Finland, which opened with this description of Helsinki pedestrians. This is not a state of national mourning in Finland. These are Finns in their natural state, brooding and private, grimly in touch but with no one but themselves, the shyest people on earth, depressed and proud of it. As far as facial expressions of the Finnish people, not much has changed since then. We are still just as reserved and melancholy as before. I'm like, is my firstborn from there? <laughs> <laughs> the secret is out. Um, as it turns out, the World Happiness Report does not pay attention to smiles, laughter, or other outward expressions of joy. Instead, the report relies on Gallup polls, which ask respondents to imagine a ladder with numbered steps. The top rung represents the best possible life for you, while the bottom rung represents the worst. The survey participants are then instructed to report the number that corresponds to the rung on which they are currently standing. In other words, you are deemed happy if your actual life circumstances approximate your highest expectations. Consistent with their Lutheran heritage, the Nordic countries are united in their embrace of curbed aspirations for the best possible life. <laughs> this mentality is famously captured in the law of Yante, a set of commandments believed to capture something essential about the Nordic disposition to personal success, such as, you are not to think you are anything special, you are not to imagine yourself better than we are, and you're not to think you are good at anything. <laughs> oh, we're not in Texas. Um, the Nordic countries provide decent lives for their citizens and prevent them from experiencing sustained periods of material hardship. Moreover, they embrace a cultural orientation that sets realistic limits to one's expectations for a good life. People are socialized to believe that what they have is as good as it gets, or close enough. The mindset explains why Finns are the happiest people in the world despite living in small apartments earning modest incomes. Maybe American parents should stop encouraging their kids to aim so high and suggest more realistic goals. One day, sweet Riley, you too can be the president of the Homeowners Association. <laughs> I, and this is the Finnish uh, um, writer speaking, I'm not sure I agree. If that's happiness, count me out. My definition of happiness includes joy, love, and meaningful engagement with the people around me. The reason why I decided to stay here in the United States, despite a couple of efforts to return to Finland, is because I like it when people smile, laugh, and yes, even talk to their neighbors. It makes me happy. RJ, you sent this to us, I believe. Is that correct? I did. I did. I thought it was uh, You're, you're I a Nordic really person. I, what? Uh, Dutch, but, you know, close enough, since we're just <laughs> lumping everyone together. Uh, yeah, the, the word reasonableness, like reasonable, I've been thinking about that word a lot because it appears in various places. Like one place is the um, serenity prayer, you know, which I love, and I've kind of been thinking a lot about, you know, everyone knows the first stanza, but they don't know how it continues. And one of the lines in the serenity prayer is... Um, trusting that he, meaning God or Jesus, will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. And I love that idea of reasonable happiness because I do think um, in, in America in general and, and specifically in places that are more 
economically advantaged, I think um, we think that supreme happiness, consistent happiness, you know, uh, constant happiness is kind of what, how we should be living, how we should be existing. And um, when the gap develops between that expectation and the reality of our lives, it creates a tremendous amount of pain and hiding um, and dishonesty, uh, all sorts of stuff. And so the idea of you know, re being reasonably happy in this life. And there's also something in the Episcopal funeral liturgy that talks about having um, the comfort of a reasonable and holy hope. Mm -hmm. You know, something about reason, just, just tamping it down all a little bit, you know, which I think is really helpful. And I find that to be helpful in my own life. Even when things are going, because I'll say like in my life right now, things are going pretty good. They haven't always, right now they are. Um, and I try to kind of hold it with a loose hand because I recognize um, that life is, is up and down and sometimes things are gonna be great and sometimes they're not gonna be so great. Um, but to keep um, expectations in sort of a, a neutral place. And then you can actually in, enjoy the, the joyful moments without having to hold on to them so tightly. And then when things aren't so great, um, you know that that will pass as well. Mm. Um, and then the other thing, I, I love the, uh, the little, the, what are they called? The rules or the laws that... that of Yante? Yeah, Yante? I love those. <laughs> and I think, um, I think those are deeply biblical. You know, the, the, there's a passage in Romans that everyone, especially very sort of moralistic people, love to quote, which is, is it 12, where he's like, therefore, um, do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds just so amazing. And the very next thing he says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. You know, but it seems like that's the transformation he's talking about. It's not some sort of ethical, moral transformation. It's just about thinking about yourself with sober judgment and esteeming others as being better than yourself. Um, and this is going to sound a little weird to say, but I'll, but I'll say it. When, when there have been times in my life when things have gone well, you know, where ministries or whatever I've been involved in have gone well, um, and people will say to me, gosh, this is going really well. You're doing such a great job. You know, this is wonderful. And I'm always just like, well, yes, God has been good, and I'm really thankful, and we'll see if it lasts. And I think I freak people out a little bit when I don't take credit for things, but I really, I don't want it. It stresses me out, you know? Mm -hmm. I would rather just give it to God and let it be, I mean, really, I'm, just, I'm really saying this, like, I would rather just keep it in his hands because I, 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 can't, I can't carry those kind of burdens. I can't carry that kind of expectation. All I can do is, is just do the best I can to be faithful and live one day at a time and keep things reasonable and trust him for the rest. So I don't, yeah, I just don't want it. Hmm. So I don't I know. I love that, RJ. I mean, I think, honestly, the preachers that are like, thank you so much. I deserve all the credit for this. Like, <laughs> they sleep with parishioners. I'm sorry. That's what okay. you do now for a long right. in church life. Like, they sleep with parishioners? Yeah. Is that what you just said? Yes. Yeah, okay, all right. They, you know, they, like, see a pretty lady, and they're like, hey, like, I'm real dynamic, and I'm doing all this stuff, and I deserve maybe to do something I shouldn't be doing. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's a survival uh, thing. Maybe it is a little bit. It's a little because survival. the glory to God, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, my poor college students that have to put up with me, like, whenever they say the word deserve. <laughs> around me they always laugh because they'll be like oh well you know you deserve that like to each other and I always it's that Luther quote you know like you deserve 
what do I deserve sin and death and hell, but for <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, who like, invited oh. her? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it was, it's a little confusing for me because it sounds almost like in Finland, like there's like people have these lower expectations for their lives, which I think is a wonderful and marvelous thing. But also maybe there's like less connection, like in community. Is that like, I'm just trying to kind of figure that out. Yeah, and that always seems to be what the other social scientists say is that like the biggest indicator of personal contentment or fulfillment has to do with how many social ties you have. Well, and uh, it sounds like the Finns, you know, no thank you, so. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, right? Sorry, my, my, my parents' death is so like the, like, um, like AD in my life, right? So. Please don't um, apologize. Before they died, um, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, and she had some kind of a cancer diagnosis. Her husband had some kind of a cancer diagnosis, and the dog got a cancer diagnosis. Um, and they had just been through it, and they had flooded in Harvey. And she, and it was a really sweet sentiment, and I'm, of course, not good at those. And she said, um, you know, we set our son down, and we are just like, this is not normal. Like, what you're having is not a normal childhood. And I was kind of like, what? You know, like, I don't know. I mean, like, are we, I mean, the thought I keep having about the loss we have experienced, honest to God, is who am I that I would think I would walk this world and not have something like this happen? Hmm. Who am I that I think that things like this don't happen to people like me? Like, that's not how the world works. And I have to tell you, that's a much more sustaining thought than this isn't normal. And, the, you know what I mean? These kind of like, I'm an exception to this happening. Mm. Um, which I'm not saying that's what my friend is saying, but, you know, I'm, we're, none of us are, are, none of us are exceptional um, when it comes to our skill sets or to, you know, to tragedy. So um, it does make me, I don't know if the word is happy, but the word is definitely like grateful for the life that I have. Um, in That's a way very that much like what Stephen Colbert said about, I think his mom, or was it, or was it Anderson Cooper about his, his mom? Anyway, that my mom never said, why me? She said, why not me? Like, why, why not me? Yes. Why, why, why would I be exempted from the, the, the suffering of the world? And yeah. Sarah, that's a good word about um, this is not normal, right? Because I've been going through that with my, again, freshman son in college who was looking forward to his second semester of senior year last spring and was really looking forward to his freshman year of college. We told him it was going to be so fun after he worked so hard in high school. And it's been kind of a nightmare, right. you know? And this whole thing of it's not normal versus like, well, I, uh, I don't know. This happens. It's going to be okay. It's not. I know it's not what you hoped for. Yeah. It's sort of not what you. It's not what we told you it's going to be like. Um, but these things, uh, these things happen. So the prayer is just. I don't know. I, I hate to say it, like it builds resilience. That sounds so. Um, uh, in, uh, you know, uncompassionate. But sounds I don't know like what like else to say. Calvin's father in the comic. Yeah, exactly. Builds character, yeah. son. I have not said that to him. I'm just trying you to love him as best like, I can. Yeah, you don't want to say, like, well, at least you're not doing college in Nazi Germany. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you, like, <laughs> well, we have had that thought. Like, at least we're not at war. At least you weren't drafted. You could really hold At least you weren't drafted, you know? But I also think it's just, like, getting him ready and, and in some ways getting me ready, even as that, you know, careening towards 40-year-old woman for life, like, to, to roll with it. And, like, gosh, I mean, I tell you, I can roll with it in a way I never knew was possible. So 
Um, and also like to know that we are not alone. I mean, you know, I said to Dave this morning, like, I know people look at what I've been through and I've said this on the podcast before, but it bears repeating. I know people look at what I've been through and they don't want me to spiritualize it. They don't want me to talk about Jesus. They just want me to talk about trauma and pain and suffering and hurt. And that sounds so nice for them, but that sounds like I can't breathe. I mean, I really like, I have to have oxygen in the room and I have to know that the the Lord is resurrected for me and for my mom and daddy. And, you know, it's only the people. And Dave said this to me, he came to the funeral for my parents and he sat on a couch and he said to me, it's going to be the people who haven't been through stuff that are going to be critical. And it's been a hundred percent true. So sorry, that was like a mini sermon, but I just, I think it's, you know, it's, it's worth saying that like finding joy in what we've been given and, and even, I mean that car, sorry, I'm like all over the place, but the car accident that I almost had yesterday when my car stopped and crossed two lanes of traffic and people were going 80 miles per hour around me. Like my parents didn't escape their car accident, but I got to get out of that one. Mm. And there was something for me that I felt very protected and very loved. I felt their presence very present to me and I felt lucky. So, you know, that's not all bad. I mean, I can't believe I get two lessons, you know? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I was thinking about... I, we just heard a wonderful talk here that I can't wait for people to hear about um, original sin and the relief of it. And it, it struck me is that um, when you talk about this idea of normal and what's expected of a normal life, that we, uh, I was reading something about this, that we, we suffer a very um, limited sense of what's normal. And that mm-hmm. has to do, that's only getting smaller because of social media and what we're exposed to. And, you know, the classic we compare our insides with other people's outsides. But what, what the Christian faith, part of what it can do in its preaching of the law, frankly, or this, the understanding of people as broken, sinful, you know, cracked actors, if you will, is, um, is expand our sense of normalcy. So that because if you have a really confined sense, a really limited view of what is quote unquote normal and that's what's expected, anything that falls out of that, you're all of a sudden, what is the word? Abnormal, aberrant, you know, that you're alone and singled out. Instead of the fact that the truth is if you got inside anyone's mind, uh, they're A, already in a, a lot of internal turmoil and pain, but B, uh, you don't know what they've suffered. You, you have no idea or what they will suffer. But to, to advocate for a, a broader sense of what's normal, I think that that's what um, the low anthropology basically does, uh, though we don't say it in those terms. Uh, so any other, any other thoughts on that before we move on? It, it, it's also what the Bible does, because the Bible <laughs> is full of crazy Here he goes. stories right. about crazy stuff that happened to people, you know, and there's, uh, yeah, I mean, we've said this before, you know, but... Um, one of the reasons Augustine to become a Christian sooner is because there was so much, so much bad behavior in the Bible, and then he suddenly realized that it actually resonated with his real life. Mm-hmm. You know, that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't who he was trying to be, he was who he was, and that uh, the Bible was full of good news for sin, sinners like him. Um, so anyway, so yeah, my little, my little Bible guy plug. <laughs> Bible, you should read it. 
The Bible. The Bible. It's not just a book. It lives. Um, in RJ's mind. Uh, I used to be really scared of the Bible, man. I don't know when, when this happened exactly. A few years ago, I was like, wait, I kind of like the Bible. There's good <laughs> stuff in there, actually. You know, I think my, my earlier high school, like, super evangelical self would never read the Bible because I told I was half, had to. And then I started act, actually to do it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is good stuff in here. Some oh, good stuff. Oh, my gosh. Did you plug over? Yeah, sorry. Is it, okay. Uh, <laughs> You, you think we're telling people to read the Bible all of a sudden. Poor Dave. Like, we just see Dave. I mean, this feels, actually, this is, like, a pretty great way to do it live because usually it's so awkward. And I'm sure it is awkward, but, like, Dave is having to absorb all the awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could turn, you guys could at least turn the thing around so you oh, could see. That no, like I'm, I'm terrified. They're all staring. They're all staring at me. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're going to talk about mastery. Uh, this is Oliver Berkman, our friend and who writer, in his wonderful, um, his wonderful newsletter, The Imperfectionist. This, this was sent uh, yesterday. He says this. Stick with me. It's a little, it's a little dense. <clears throat> it occurs to me that the fantasy of somehow stepping outside reality so as to control it undermines many of our most problematic approaches to time and productivity. It's the desire to somehow lever yourself outside of the unfolding processes of life, to achieve a dominant position above and separate from things, like some kind of godlike air traffic controller, to be the master and commander of your time. That, in my mind, is the yearning behind the desire to, quote, get on top of things. Note the metaphor. And behind the tendency to put important things off until you've, quote, cleared the decks of smaller tasks, or until some imaginary future point at which you'll have got your life into proper working order and real, real life can finally begin. It's surely also the secret longing of the compulsive planner. Any compulsive planners in here? Who want to scramble up to some vantage point from which it might be possible to know how the future unfolds. And of the efficiency obsessive, striving to become so perfectly optimized that there's no obligation or opportunity she'd ever have to fail at or decline. She wants to step outside the constraints of her finite time. By the same token, the most fruitful and practical ways of thinking about time and productivity come down to realizing that you're already inescapably part of and constrained by reality, that your time is already running out. And that's why... You should give up on trying to reach a phase of life that's problem-free. It's also why you should stop trying to clear the decks and instead just get on with doing stuff that matters while tolerating the fact that the decks aren't clear. It's why you should treat your pile of unread books and articles as a river instead of a bucket you might one day manage to empty. All of which is deeply unpleasant at first, for anyone who feels this desire to achieve mastery over life, because it means acknowledging how horribly limited and finite and ultimately mortal you really are. Still, compared to the alternative approach, i.e. getting on top of things, it has the inestimable upside of not being completely impossible. And in the end, it's a huge relief and a spur to action and accomplishment. He concludes by saying, the reason you never feel on top of everything isn't that you're a particularly ill-disciplined loser. The reason you'll never get on top of everything is because you're inextricably enmeshed in the everything you've been struggling to get on top of. 
And I think that's a, um, it's another way of underscoring our, our sort of anthropology, our limitations, our creatureliness. But it, it, in, in the parlance of modern like optimization and time management, I found it to be deeply refreshing. Because I certainly, I was talking to someone recently who, who said that th this is the year that they are finally on top of school uh, for their children. And my initial response was like, I hate you. You know, like I, I, I'm so far away from that uh, uh, that I, I can't even see it. You know, <laughs> and the, uh, our teachers are, Disappointed in me, um, but it's uh, it creates on top of already the demands in which we are living. It creates a sort of a guilt system, a feedback loop, uh, by which you never you're chasing after something that's completely imaginary. Uh, as a and as a limited person trying to achieve this, I don't know. Does that any of that resonate with you guys? I brought a show and tell. You just did show and tell. No, I brought a show and tell. Okay. I mean, just grabbed it off my windowsill as you were talking. Yep. Everyone, <laughs> this is my parents. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I tuck little things in here. A friend told me to do this. That's been like very helpful for me that remind me of them. And you know, the kids do stuff. So I just have to take this because it's hilarious. Splenda packets because they had them everywhere. <laughs> That's, um, that, wait, you, you're, you're unpacking Splenda packets that are in the urn with your parents' yeah, ashes? Yeah, they're with the ashes. Oh, okay. yeah, I shove it all in there. I'm mm -hmm. tracking. All right. Yeah. What else um, is in there? <laughs> and there's a bunch of sweet stuff, but I love this. This is hilarious to me. So this is from my grandmother's funeral. It's stationary to thank people for coming to my mother's mother's funeral. And my mother turned it into a to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I pull this out sometimes both because I deeply love my mother's handwriting and it says things like target doll so I know she's getting some for Andy mm. but also it reminds me that she like all of us was someone that like lived one to-do list into the next and I have a to-do list. I mean, I'm not telling people not to have a to-do list, but I have had to have so many days where all the things I was going to get done have not gotten done, and it has been fun. Mm. Um, and it hasn't just been fun because I get some sort of a free pass because of what happened. Like, it's actually just been fun. Um, so if there is a space to just, like, let go and, and to not feel like we're going to get to the end of all our tasks and to, I don't know, actually believe that the freedom of Jesus is real. Mm. I hope that you can find it. Um, and I hope you don't have to find it in such a hard way, but I hope that you can find it because it's definitely, it's definitely there for you to find. I had a real experience of that. Um, was it this Monday or last Monday? Who knows? But I had a really hard week or so or 10 days where I'd had some sort of um, church function or kid function or something like for like, you know, eight out of 10 nights or something like that. And I ended up working all day Saturday because I took some high schoolers to play paintball and there's an outreach event and I had a dinner and then church and then we had another dinner on Sunday night. And I got to Monday morning and I was just wiped out. 
and usually today's my day off. I take Friday off. Um, so I was supposed to go in the office, and I'm like, okay, I could just I could force myself to go in, and I would sit at my desk and stare at my computer, and just try to answer the emails I have to or to get through my my to do list. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a little merciful with myself, and I'm just going to kind of stay home and watch TV or something, do whatever. Mm-hmm. Ended up not doing that. I mean, I did that for like a. I did that for a few minutes. Then I was like, you know, I'm going to get out. I, I went out and I just like got a cup of coffee and I got like a, a, went to a little cafe and just like read the newspaper and I was just it was it was kind of nice. I did that for probably 45 minutes, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do the rest of the day? I don't know. So I ended up working pretty much the whole day. But I the the, the reason was an answer to prayer was because what I what I did was what I actually did was the most important thing I needed to do, and I knew it, and it was really what I ended up doing with my time, the work I ended up doing was um, something I really will, will be helpful and it was good and it wasn't little detail work and it wasn't a to-do list. It was like the biggest to-do. It was the most important thing, right? And it would never would have happened if I'd forced myself to go in and sort of, because um, I, I keep my to-do list on my phone, you know, and it's like 10 pages long. You could just scroll for days. And my fantasy, I, I, it skewered me, because my fantasy is like, someday my to-do list will be completely empty, and I'll go home and just achieve nirvana. You know, I'll get totally organized, which is never going to happen. Um, but it was amazing that in the moment, I decided to be a little bit merciful with myself for like literally 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I found the energy to do exactly what I needed to do. Um, and it was uh, it being a really, really good day. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe there is a God. Maybe I'm not. In, maybe, maybe he does answer prayer. Maybe I'm not in this. My <laughs> maybe I know. should crack open the Bible. Like every Monday for our No, I did not crack open the Bible. Like, <laughs> was... maybe God is real. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> what you're saying reminds me of that line in Seinfeld when they, someone asked Newman, who's a postman, like, why postman, you know, <laughs> go postal. And uh, he said, because the mail never stops. <laughs> And that's how I feel about laundry. And I, um, I yes. think we should just immerse ourselves in, in the river. If I could see laundry as a river mm. and, and like the mail, then maybe I could think of it spiritually instead of as this thing that I'm just perpetually failing at. And this idea that one day all of the socks will have pairs, you know, and that's then we will all ascend into kingdom come. Um, but the idea of mastery is so, um, I think it's so seductive for yeah. Americans. I think it's very seductive for uh, probably people in midlife who feel like they're chasing some sort of mastery. Um, and I, 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 I love, Berkman is trying to, I think, pronounce absolution on people who, who, for whom the failure to finish a to-do list is not just a, uh, a functional thing, it's a moral thing. Like they, they take, it becomes an existential verdict that you are lacking. And there's these other people out there, these efficiency experts who really do have it all together. And again, it's a narrow view of what's normal. We think that there are, that we, there, there's, it's what's, what's the Onion article? Like man gets life in order for 20 minutes. Yeah. Like once. I think that that's, uh, that's actually much closer to normalcy. But this uh, idea about mastery, it was brought up in a more, I guess, um, incisive or uh, religious way uh, a couple of weeks ago. So Ross Douthit, writing in the New York Times, he wrote an article, a very interesting piece about why elites in America 
meritocratic elites are unlikely to get religion anytime soon. And he's really talking about Christianity in this respect. But there's a Catholic writer named Audrey Polnow who wrote a response, and she agreed with what Douthat gives two reasons, and this is what Audrey says, though. She says, Ross Douthat offered a couple reasons that American elites are unlikely to get, get religion. First, they hold, uh, they hold that irrational anti, oh, sorry, <clears throat> first, they hold uh, anti-supernaturalist pre prejudices. Uh, meaning anything that smacks of supernatural is just out the door as to, before any discussion is had. Second, quote, the American educated class is deeply committed to a moral vision that regards emancipated, self-directed choice as essential to human freedom and the good life. This is Paul now writing. She says, I'll add a third reason. Religion undermines the sense of mastery the experience of earned and earnable distinction, which is central to the identity of many American elites. To the extent that America is meritocratic, elites are winners in a system that divides people up on the basis of real, although only quite partial, virtues. They're usually clever, ambitious, organized, competent. It's hard for such people to, quote, get a religion like Christianity because it doesn't offer the sense of mastery which they're used to. In fact, it usually undermines it in a pretty shocking way. Most people who become Christian, who try to follow the commandments of the church, find that it's really difficult, and not in the good difficult sense that elites love, the hard workout, the challenging job, but difficult because it involves repeated failures, failures which may continue for your entire earthly life. This is a, quote, life project where you don't get to view yourself as the hero. Instead, it requires that you accept you're going to be the, quote, difficult person in the relationship. <laughs> that on net, you'll be a recipient of forgiveness more than you get to be the person who generously offers it to those who are less fortunate, able, and virtuous. Almost everyone who tries to sincerely live as a Christian will find themselves confessing the same sins over and over. And this is particularly hard for elites to handle. They're used to either being able to write something off as, quote, not a problem, not something I need to work on, or being able to solve it decisively. But the idea that you need to keep struggling against something while also cultivating an attitude of peace and detachment about your own performance is, well, it's the opposite of meritocratic. Elites are just like everyone else in that they're sinners. But unlike everyone else, they're used to viewing themselves as special, and especially as virtuous. To be clear, I'm not just blaming elites here. Christians sometimes fail to emphasize the extent to which Christianity is at war with meritocratic prejudices. But we need to emphasize both aspects of God's love for us. Not just that he calls us to radical transformation, but also that he loves us right now, just the way we are. The path to transformation might be messy, slow, and uncertain, and most of us will need to rely on being loved rather than rely on our prospects of success, prospects that might look dim most of the time. We will need to rely on being loved if we're going to keep going. Kind of a mic drop of, a, of an article. Does that, um, does that map onto your experience of... I, I, I have a hard time. I, I don't know many people who say, um, hey, I'm an elite. Nice to meet you. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know those people, but I apparently I've spent a lot of time with them. Uh, 
what do you think? I mean, so I don't like the us versus them language particularly because I just don't think it's true to how people think of themselves. But I do get this: the Americans, Western people, 21st century people, whatever. We we thrive on the allure of mastery and the kind of retreating horizon in front of us, and we don't know how we would ever even get out of bed without it in front of us. And Christianity, I do think, undermines that in a way that can be shocking, as she says, but also of deep relief and comfort. Um, but RJ, you, you were you were so, doing something. I think first of all, the authors, um, I buy like seventy percent into the author's vision of Christianity, right? He, his 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 vision of Christianity seems to be a lot more she. about effort and striving to keep the commandments and all that sort of stuff. And I probably err more on the side of of grace and mercy and forgiveness and unconditional love and and not quite so much effort. So I have a little bit like I'm like eh. But the other thing is, um, no matter how meritocratic you are, it doesn't it doesn't save you from the the life's pains, you know, from getting cancer, you know, from children who won't call, you know. Uh, my dad literally used to say to me and my brothers when we were not uh, treating him with the respect that he felt he deserved. He's like, you know, he would literally say to us, you know, people at the office really respect me. <laughs> he would say that. <laughs> And that's what I'm saying. Like, no matter how much you've achieved or how meritocratic you are or how, like, how great everyone thinks you are at the office, like, your kids don't care. <laughs> your wife doesn't care. You know, cancer doesn't care. You know, uh, depression and alcoholism don't care. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this whole, and, and we talked about this last week. You can be meritocratic as all get out and, and feel like you, you're special and that you've accomplished a great deal. But if you, if you live a little bit in the world and have um, you know, any kind of honest relationship with another human being, including yourself, it's very quickly all gonna come tumbling down. And I guess you can sustain it with like a tremendous amount of denial or something. Um, or alcohol. But, or alcohol, exactly. I was, I was gonna say that, substances. But it just, that has not been my experience. My experience is that you know, so-called elites you know, and again, who, what is that even? Who is that? It's you. Um, yep. seem, it's me. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, uh, seem to need Jesus uh, just as much as, as anyone else. Now, they may not feel safe to talk about it. Mm. I will say that. They may be part of a, a, a culture where it's not, they don't feel safe to talk about vulnerability, weakness, failures, fear, things like that. But I, I do feel, um, given the opportunity, they, they uh, you know, it's there. Yeah. It's there. And to me, that's the doorway to faith, right? Failure is kind of the doorway to faith. And, and yeah, your salary or your, your university posting is not going to save you from that. Hmm. Um, well, the first thing, the first bone of contention I have with this author is that uh, he asserted that elites aren't into um, the supernatural. <laughs> it's a like, she. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, that's it's, it's, it's your gender. Because clearly she like doesn't look at Instagram. Believes <laughs> 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 in crystals and like, you know, spending a lot of money on essential oils. And anyway, that's fascinating to me. That assertion that like they don't believe in the supernatural. Like everyone believes in the supernatural. They just do. Like, um. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this, the, you know, the sermon that kept coming to mind, Dave, and I'm sorry, this is obscure, but the guy who preached at the National Cathedral and he ended it with the G.K. Chesterton quote. David Brooks? No, no was it Gerson? Michael Gerson? Yes. The depression one? Yes. Oh, that's a really, that's a, 
all time it's, greatest. Yeah. It's an incredible yes. sermon. And, you know, preached in a place that doesn't have a lot of testimony, yeah. I would get when it comes to their preaching. And it was a sermon that was all over the place. And guys, I've never seen a sermon preached in the National Cathedral that's all over the place. Um, it just, it, it was so compelling because he spoke as someone who I'm sure, you know, would be considered an elite, who had been through so much suffering and so much pain and, and found, and really found the gospel there. Um, it also makes me think of, uh, Dave, I feel like I say this to you once a week, but how uh, Paul Walker, I think someone said to your rector, so your head pastor of your church, uh, or to you, why do you preach like everyone's always in an existential crisis? <laughs> and it's like, but it, do you, do you believe, are. yeah, 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 sorry. Yep. There's not an existential crisis right now, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's that, I mean, it's the idea, like, when I preach to my students, you know, some of them come in with this, like, pedigree of having, like, been born into the Episcopal Church, and some of them, like, aren't even Christian yet. And I preach to the ones who aren't even Christian yet, knowing that the ones who have grown up in the church need to hear it just as much, if not more. Mm, yeah. 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 One thing I really do agree with her on, and she, she kind of gets there, is that, Sarah, yeah, on the off chance that by some miracle someone actually goes to your church, you know, actually shows up at church, you know, to have a message that does not support uh, or, or sort of fuel the fire of their meritocratic thinking, but actually sort of announces the end of it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and creates a space for vulnerability, honesty, humility, transparency, all that, all that sort of stuff. And that probably has as much to do with kind of tone of the sermon as opposed to the actual um, message that's, that's delivered. But the church does have a, a incredible opportunity to just be like, nope, sorry, we don't, we don't play that game. You know, go, if you want no mercy, you'll find plenty of it out there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want a little relief, you, come, come here. You know, if you want to, if you only talk about the truth, about reality, yeah. you know, come here. No, it's, it's the, you, you mentioned the serenity prayer earlier, and one of the, the only bones to ever pick with AA, with Alcoholics Anonymous, is that there's a belief within it that there are addicts, and then there are, quote, earth people. Basically, people that don't struggle with, they, they have a genetic makeup that they're not predisposed to addictive behavior around alcohol or metabolize, metabolize alcohol in strange ways. And yet, if you dig beneath the surface of most people, you know, they have those, um, that, that impulse is playing out in other ways. I mean, the, the, the deeper, I, I would say that's one of the places in, its, uh, in the book that um, we published, the Grace and Addiction book, it's one of the, the things where John, my brother, says, well, this is one of the only, one of the great places where the AA can actually learn from the church because its yeah. diagnosis is so spot on, but it just doesn't go far enough. Um, everyone mm-hmm. is an, a control freak addict um, of some variety who's going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And, and, you know, jaywalk into, uh, you know, a highway, uh, it's just going to look slightly different. It's not all going to have to do with, um, you know, distilled spirits or something like that. It could have to do with extreme smugness or, um, you know, really cool swag at a, a Mockingbird conference or, or I mean, meaning, or it could be, it could, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, status type games that people play that are compulsive and they can't seem to stop. Uh, so I don't know where I'm 
quite going with that except everyone for, has their own addiction and it, it's just it, the church is sinners anonymous or it should be something like that mm. right because it's it's uh yeah that, that's anyway, i think that's what you're trying well, to say yeah well where she ends up is to say that like the 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 Christians, because they want to forward a moral vision of the world, which is legitimate and, and you know, uh, constructive in a lot of ways, they sometimes can be guilty of downplaying the fact that they're, they're not even capable of uh, uh, realizing their moral vision and that the only thing that is sustaining is this sense that God loves you, forgives you in, right now. And that that's, that's where she ends it. She's saying, like, m- because mastery... Just because mastery doesn't exist doesn't mean like the lack of mastery isn't painful, but we can, the only way to continue living in that is with this proclamation uh, through the Holy Spirit that um, you were loved and um, you, were, you were forgiven. It's, it's, it's Justin Bieber all over again, right? And I'd also say, I gotta think the impulse to mastery, if you really to talk to people who, who, who feel that need, not, not that I would know, um, <laughs> is, uh, is, is not coming out of necessary place of ego. Maybe sometimes it is, but probably more likely at a place, a place of brokenness, yeah. you know, a place of not enoughness. Mm-hmm. Like if I could just, if I could just master things, then maybe I'll be a worthwhile person. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe, maybe my, maybe my, my parent will love me. Maybe I can love myself. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's not just, yeah. It's not at all. I mean, I, the only thing I want to say that I think is important to say, especially in a Mockingbird conference, because creativity is such a high value for us, is that, you know, don't confuse mastery with creativity, right? Because, mm. like, you say mastery, I think creative people, like, I, you know, there's something, it's, it's mastery, I think that's the difference, RJ, exactly, is it's not fueled by a, a, a beauty or a, a desire to create, it's fueled out of brokenness. And we all have that. I mean, I, Dave, seriously would have said this fall to you. This is the first time we felt on top of school. I would have said that. You know? <laughs> and then now I'm like, I don't know. You know, I get these like text messages like nobody has a lunch. I'm like, oh shit, they still eat. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, just basking in the grace of God, I suppose. Um, well, thank you both. We have, uh, you know, places to go and people to see here in Tyler, Texas. But um, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening, those of you who weren't here. And I hope everyone does get to watch some of these amazing presentations that are happening in Tyler. But the two of you, um, I hope to see you soon. I don't expect that we'll have mastered anything at that point. But um, I'm going to guarantee it. RJ, I'm especially, I'm especially confident that you won't have. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, love That's you too. Love, love you guys. too. Right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>